I've got to take a test today. It's not just any test. The stakes are high. If I pass it, I get to vote. If I don't pass, I don't get to cast a ballot. Everything hinges on whether or not I can answer the questions to the satisfaction of one person. And I'll have to think quickly. The whole test, all 30 questions, has to be done in 10 minutes. Meet my registrar. Come into my registrar's office. What do you want? I said, what do you want? That's actually Carol Anderson. She's an Emory professor whose latest book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. She agreed to give me a 1960s literacy test from Louisiana right now in 2018. She did not go easy on me. What makes you think you have the right to register to vote? Uh, uh, I was told I could. You're not sounding too literate with your um, ha, um, ha. Why are you here? Oh, you would love to register to vote. Well, let me give you the test to see if you've got what it takes to be a voter in my state. So she gave me the instructions. Do what you are told to do in each statement. Nothing more, nothing less. Be careful as one wrong answer denotes failure of the test. Question one, draw a line around the number or letter of this sentence. The number, so maybe the number one? All right, I'm gonna draw a tick, line around that tick, one. But tick, what about that letter of the tick. sentence? What on earth does that mean? In the space below, write the word noise backwards and place a dot over what would be its second letter should it have been written forward. So the O would have been on the second letter. So I'd place a dot over that. And remember, one wrong, and you don't get the registered to vote. I'm trying. <sighs> yes, you are trying. You are trying my patience. This really is a waste of my time, because you obviously are not literate. Spell backwards forwards. Spell backwards forwards? B A C K W. A R D. Mm. You flunked. So your judgment is final? Yes. That part you got right. I forgot. Backwards ends with an S. For that, my right to vote as a black person was taken away? It's a random reason to get disenfranchised in the 1960s. But you're fooling yourself if you think calculated roadblocks to voting are a thing of the past. That's why we're telling this story now. The past isn't the past. People who want to register still have to jump through too many hoops. And voting can be difficult for some American citizens. Citizens, not people here illegally. Citizens. From HuffPost, this is Shut Out, a podcast about the fight to vote in America. I'm your host, Catherine St. Louis. This is episode one, You Flunked. Recently, America went to the polls for the midterm elections. No one had to take a literacy test, thankfully, We've made a world of progress since then. But have we? Really? Sure, we have the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and that was one of the biggest game changers for American democracy. But in the decades since the law has passed, our right to vote has come under repeated attack. The ways people get blocked from voting today aren't the flagrant acts we know from history books. They're much more subtle, and officials often present voting restrictions as race-neutral and necessary. But when you start to look closer, it's clear that's not always the case. Sometimes the intent of these restrictions isn't subtle at all. Can't afford ID? Sorry, ma'am, you can't vote. If you sat out the last couple of elections, nah, sir, sorry, your name's no longer on the voter rolls. 
And don't even get me started about the millions of former felons who still can't cast a ballot in this country. Over the next three episodes, with an eye to the 2020 election, we'll dig into the ways suppressing the vote is weakening our democracy and how it might even be creating a backlash. But for now, back to the 1960s, when the literacy test was an insurmountable hurdle for black folk. It is designed to frustrate. It is designed to, to strike fear. It is designed to demoralize. It is designed to paralyze. It is designed to be an obstacle to the ballot box. That's why registrars used to have full discretion to ask impossible questions. In Mississippi, they like to ask would-be black voters how many bubbles in a bar of soap. I don't even know how to begin to answer that. I asked my 10-year-old, and he started nervously giggling. It makes no sense, he said. No matter, that was the test. Black folks could take it or leave it. Different states had different literacy tests. In Alabama, voters had to read and interpret part of the state's constitution. We want informed citizens. Fair enough. How hard could it be? But the exam was hardly fair. A black applicant had to read a paragraph out loud, full of legalese, without a single misstep. We don't need voters who stumble. Here I am, reading Section 260 of Alabama's Constitution. The income arising from the 16th Section Trust Fund. Alabama's literacy test was not easy at all. It was part interpreting constitutional law on the spot and part performance. And the funds enumerated... Black men had to read 187 words with no errors. White men got to read a different passage entirely. They read just eight words out loud, and they were registered to vote. That no person shall be imprisoned for debt. That's it. But even if everyone had been given the same paragraph to read, it wouldn't have leveled the playing field. That's because black people's education had been systematically underfunded. To the point that in many, many locations in the South, the school system for African Americans did not include high schools. By the time we're in the 1940s, in Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina, over 50% of black adults had less than five years of formal Jim Crow education. And yet, to be able to vote, black folks had to interpret Alabama's constitution. I couldn't make sense of it. I told Professor Anderson as much, and then confessed. I mean, I went to college and I have my master's. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, you know words. (laughs) I guess I made her point that this test wasn't about literacy. It was about finding a way to stop black voters. This was strategic. It was necessary because the 15th Amendment had already given black men and former slaves the right to vote. Long ago, back in 1870, 20 years later, literacy tests had their heyday when Mississippi formulated a plan. It was about answering one question for the white delegates who gathered in Jackson that November. How do we ensure that black people do not vote? But how do we do that, given that there's this thing called the 15th Amendment? Right, so they had to kind of be sneaky about it. They had to be really sneaky. And so it was a way to say we don't want black people to vote, but we can't write a law that says we don't want black people to vote. So how do we see to it that black people don't vote and we can still remain constitutional? And the way they did that was an array of devices. One, you guessed it, was the literacy test. But that wasn't the only one. Poll tax, 
white primary. Grandfather clause, election day terrorism. Let's talk about one of the most effective ways black people were kept from voting, poll taxes. Essentially, they're a pay-to-play scheme. Sharecroppers couldn't afford to pay, so they couldn't participate. Plus, a poll tax had to be paid in cash months before an election, and sharecroppers only had cash late in the season. But let's say a black person did have the money. It wasn't clear where they had to pay their poll tax, or exactly when. And did I mention the tax was cumulative? is so that at 21, you're supposed to pay your poll tax. But it takes you, say, 20 years to figure out where to pay it and to have the cash to pay it. You owe 20 years of back poll taxes before you can be able to vote. Wow, that's amazing. Imagine if polling places tried taxing voters today. It sure would be an effective way to lower turnout. But intimidation kept people from the polls, too. Having to pay to vote was one thing. But black folks, we used to live in fear of lynching. By 1965, a critical mass of civil rights activists had grown tired of being disenfranchised. A historic showdown in Selma on Edmund Pettus Bridge would usher in change, but not before more violence. When we got to the top of the bridge, we could see down and there was the state troopers uh, sort of lined up across Highway 80. They had deputized uh, locals who were very likely Ku Klux Klans or Ku Klux Klan types and had given them billy clubs and many of the state troopers had masks on. And at this point, we knew it was, wasn't gonna be a very pleasant day. That's Charles. Charles Malden, and I'm 70 years old. But he was just 17 on the day of the protest that would come to be known as Bloody Sunday. He had spent the better part of 1965 skipping class to go to civil rights marches. He was sick of being considered inferior. One of the things that got me involved in the civil rights movement uh, most directly was a sense of indignity as opposed to some type of organized concept of like getting registered to vote. What kind of injustice did you deal with in Selma in the 1960s? It was sort of like being in a big open air prison with, with all types of restrictions. You couldn't go to the library. You couldn't drink out of, quote, the white fountain. You had to drink out of the colored fountain. You couldn't go to a white hospital. And there were heavy penalties if you stepped out of line. That day, facing down police with billy clubs, Charles happened to be steps away from John Lewis. We continued to march down the bridge and directly confronted the state troopers. One of the state troopers used his billy club to hit John Lewis across the head and basically knock him out. Yes, that John Lewis. Georgia's longtime congressman. Back then, he was the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Like I said, I'll never forget that sound. It was a, a, a thumping type of sound. Wood on, on a skull, you know. Then they threw tear gas into the crowd. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in tear gas, but tear gas sort of causes your eyes to water, causes your skin to burn, and also your lungs to sort of implode. And at that point, the only thing you can do is try to get away from it. ABC cut into its primetime premiere of the film Judgment at Nuremberg, which was about Nazi Germany, and showed images of the brutality on Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, of police uh, wearing uh, riot masks, wearing gas masks, beating civil rights demonstrators, trampling them on horsebacks, whipping them, firing tear gas into the crowd. And a lot of confused viewers thought they were seeing images of Nazi Germany, but it was actually Selma, Alabama. 
That's Ari Berman. I am the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Truth was, black voters were intimidated every day, not just at protests. There was also just a climate of tremendous amount of fear. If you somehow ended up registering and you were African American, they would print your name in the newspaper and your address, so suddenly everyone knew where you lived. And fear worked. Only 2% of African Americans in Selma were registered to vote, and then Hundreds of peaceful protesters were attacked with billy clubs on March 7, 1965. After that, voters who had been sidelined, people like Charles's parents, took action. I think that they both felt that the least they could do is register to vote since we had all put our, our uh, lives on the line to get people registered. Before that, his parents had tried to register to vote, but they hadn't pushed it because they wanted to keep their jobs. She was a nurse and he distributed produce. And then Charles risked his life. You know, uh, your children will get you to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. Selma was a breaking point for their family and the nation. LBJ knew enough was enough. And eight days after Bloody Sunday, he introduced the Voting Rights Act of 1965 before a joint session of Congress. Basically, the idea was that this would knock out these kind of literacy tests and related restrictions overnight. On August 5th, 1965, there was a literacy test in Alabama, but on August 7th, 1965, the day after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, there was no more literacy test. I mean, the legislation just wiped it out. And on August 10th, Artie Smalden rose early to go do something she had never done before. What did your mother become famous for? Well, you know, we never thought of my mother as being famous. <laughs> but she happened to have been the first person to register to vote as a result of the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I found out because of a Jet Magazine article that was written in April, I think, 1969, where she was highlighted. When I discovered that, I looked into the commission records and found that my father's certificate showed him being number two. It took a federal examiner just a few minutes to register Artie Smalden. No more having to beg to vote. No more being blocked. That's because the other big thing the Voting Rights Act did was... It sent federal officials to the South to register voters. They were going to force compliance with the law. Wait, what? Federal examiners were deployed to Alabama, where the Ku Klux Klan ruled the roost? Who were they? Were they voting experts? Were they civil rights lawyers? That's Sam Levine, HuffPost's voting rights reporter. He wanted to know more, too, so he asked Ari Berman. They were people from the federal civil service who were trained to do this. They were not voting rights experts. They were kind of like paper pushers in the government who suddenly found themselves in Selma, Alabama, uh, having to register people to vote in the most segregationist places in the country. But I actually interviewed one of them, and it was fascinating. He basically said, we stayed on an army base, and we didn't socialize with the locals because they were not well-received. But federal examiners got the job done. On day one, they registered more than 1,100 black voters in nine Alabama counties, 107 in Selma. Day two, more than 1,700 black voters registered. By day 11, 20,000 black voters had been registered in those nine Alabama counties. Oh, it was a seismic change. That's Carol Anderson. The Voting Rights Act got noticeable results immediately. Black people lined up to register. Literacy tests were abolished. But voter suppression didn't end. 
Once the Voting Rights Act became law, states looked for new ways to frustrate black voters. In Mississippi, for example, lawmakers redrew districts to dilute the black vote. So the Supreme Court quickly clarified that states couldn't do this, and they focused on a section of the law that initially got very little attention. It's called Section 5. Section 5. Section 5. Section 5. The Supreme Court made it clear that Section 5 was incredibly powerful. It forced states and counties with the worst history of discrimination to jump through extra hoops. They had to approve all, all election changes before they went into effect with the federal government. Every single one had to be vetted by the attorney general or federal judges who either said yes or no. What this part of the voting law did is it prevented this suppression from ever occurring because discriminatory voting changes were blocked in advance. You get the point. The more I thought about Section 5 and its ability to stamp out future discrimination, I started thinking about that 2002 Spielberg movie, Minority Report. I know, I know. It's not Tom Cruise's finest work. But remember how he played a cop who went around stopping murder before it happened? That part was kind of incredible. He was part of a pre-crime unit. Section 5 has a similar power, the power of pre-clearance. And that was so, so, so important because in virtually every other aspect of life, discriminatory things happen, then you have to challenge them after the fact. But this knocked it out beforehand. So it stopped the crime before the crime ever was committed. For decades, Section 5 meant that the federal government was keeping tabs on places with a history of discrimination and keeping them in check. But all that changed in 2013. I have the opinion of the court this morning in case 1296, Shelby County versus Holder. In the end, the Supreme Court decided that the formula they used to decide which states and counties need oversight, that formula it wasn't constitutional. And without the formula, Section 5 would be nullified. Not everyone agreed that the law should be changed. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued that Section 5 had been critical. To prevent a return to old ways. In 1995, for example, the state of Mississippi was stopped by Section 5 from bringing back its Jim Crow era dual voter registration system. And in 2006, Texas was stopped from curtailing early voting in a predominantly Latino district. The analogy used by Ruth Bader Ginsburg was basically that you don't throw away your umbrella just because it's not raining one day. And what she was trying to say was just because voter suppression isn't happening in a certain place or a certain county right now doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future, that it was going to rain again. Once Section 5 was gutted, within 24 hours started pouring. You had laws that were actually blocked as discriminatory, like Texas's voter ID law, where you could vote with a handgun permit but not a student ID. That law was put into effect hours after the decisions. A month after Shelby County versus Holder was decided, North Carolina passed a sweeping rewrite of its election laws. They required strict ID. They cut early voting. They eliminated election day registration during the early voting period. Black voters used early voting more than others take it away, it's going to impact their turnout. Black voters disproportionately also didn't have the IDs that the new law in North Carolina required. 
A federal appeals court would later strike down this North Carolina law because it said it targeted black people with almost surgical precision. I would argue that if there are laws that are targeting black voters in such an extreme way, then probably those provisions of the Voting Rights Act that were ruled unconstitutional needed to still be in effect. A lot of work goes into suppressing the black vote, not just in North Carolina, but in other states too. Legislators have gone through the data to figure out which kinds of government-issued photo ID African-Americans have and which kinds they don't have. They have then written into the law to make the holy grail the kinds that African-Americans disproportionately do not have. By crafting the IDs that count and the ones that don't count, you then have politicians being able to shape the electorate, to be able to choose who their voters are instead of having their voters choose them. Let that sink in. Democracy is supposed to put power in the hands of voters, the people. People in power aren't supposed to be able to choose who puts them there. The Voting Rights Act is often called the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. The law dramatically expanded the access to the ballot box for African Americans. And the law created safeguards to ensure that places known for blocking black voters didn't do it again. But in 2013, once the Supreme Court essentially killed Section 5, it freed states up to do what they wanted. Sure, they might get sued, but a new election change could be in effect for an election or two. No more stopping discrimination before it happened. So if a state wanted to shorten early voting, they could. If a state wanted to close a polling place right before an election, they could. No more federal preclearance. No more standing in their way. You've been listening to Shut Out, a podcast about the fight to vote in America. I'm your host, Catherine St. Louis. It's 2018. You might be surprised to learn there's still one group of people that states can legally block from voting. Millions of felons can't vote. Next time on Shut Out, we talk to the felons who have long been kept from the ballot box and to one woman from Texas who paid dearly for not knowing she couldn't vote while out on supervised release. Crystal Mason is now back in prison, and we've got the only phone interview with her since she reported for her sentence. This episode was written and reported by Sam Levine and me. We're edited by Sam Story. I produced this episode with studio assistance from Nick Offenberg and Sarah Patterson. Special thanks to Paul Josephson, Joe Confino, Bela Metzger, Morgan Givens, and a huge thumbs up to HuffPost's Mark Jenks, who managed this production with grace. Shut Out is a production of HuffPost. Hey, listeners, it's Sam Levine at HuffPost. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. If you like Shut Out, take a listen to Peace of Mind, a new podcast by singer and songwriter B. Beeman. It's actually a new album, but he's releasing it as a podcast. 
Each episode features a different song accompanying conversations and storytelling about the issues that inspired it. Issues like voter suppression and immigration. We think you might like episode three of Peace of Mind. It's all about voter suppression and features an in-depth interview with Dale Ho, the director of the Voting Rights Project at the ACLU. New episodes are available every Friday. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.